Several books have been written about the slow demolition of the media. My own book, Witch Hunt, I devote a lengthy chapter to how reporters have abandoned objectivity, forsaken all semblance of neutrality and fairness. Their political favoritism, their personal dislikes, influence the story they choose to cover and the way they tell those stories. Journalists today shape the content of stories to conform to their own beliefs and often their own misconceptions. They've become partisan activists. Bias doesn't creep into a reporter's story, hits the viewer and the reader over the head with it. It's no wonder that Americans no longer have much faith in the current mainstream media. They've squandered both credibility and trust, their only currency. All of this is underscored in a very important new book called Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. The author is Cheryl Atkinson, a five-time Emmy Award-winning investigative journalist and New York Times best-selling author. She worked at CBS News, PBS, and CNN. She's currently the host and managing editor of the nonpartisan Sunday morning TV program Full Measure with Cheryl Atkinson. She joins us now to talk about her book. Attorney. Fox News legal analyst and two-time New York Times best-selling author. This is The Brief with Greg Jarrett. Hello, everyone. I'm Greg Jarrett, and welcome to The Brief. By now, you've all heard me talk about my pillow and how it's literally changed my life. I met Mike Lindell. He fit me for my very own my pillow. And I haven't stopped raving about it since then. They won't go flat. You can wash and dry them as many times as you want, and they maintain their shape. Made in the USA. If you don't have a MyPillow or know somebody who doesn't, now is the time, because there's a limited time that Mike is offering his premium MyPillows. Yes, the one that started it all for his lowest price ever. You can get a queen-size premium MyPillow regularly $69.98 for only $29.98. That's a $40 savings. Kings are only $5 more. Folks, now is the time to buy. Not only are you getting the lowest price ever, but they're the best Christmas gifts ever. $29.98 for a queen-size premium MyPillow. Buy now, and Mike will extend his 60-day money-back guarantee to March 1st, 2021. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the Radio Listener's Square. There, you'll find not only this amazing offer, but also deep discounts on all of the MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream Bed Sheets, the MyPillow Mattress Topper, and MyPillow Towel Sets. Or call 800 605 8765 and use promo code GREG, G R E G G. Cheryl, thanks so much for being with us. Your book, I must say, is, is excellent. I highly recommend that people read it because it exposes in detail how so many reporters distort the facts, they exaggerate information, and they infect their stories with this point of view bias that drives their preferred narratives. And narratives, as readers of your book will see, is, is really the key word. And so let me quote from page 51 of your book subtitled The Devolution of the News, where you write, quote, 
No longer do reporters keep their opinion f- opinions firewalled from their stories. Their stories are rife with their opinions. Dubious anonymous sources repeatedly relied upon, even after they've proven to be shamefully unreliable. Basic fact checks go unconducted as long as the news furthers an anti-Trump negative uh, narrative. Egregious reporting mistakes are made by the same outlets and sometimes the same reporters over and over again. So, Cheryl, why is that? Well, I think if you look at what the news has become, the devolution of journalism as we once knew it, as I know you see things, it's no longer about, to the extent it used to be, finding the facts on the ground, representing different viewpoints, telling what we know. It's changed into the narrative machine that you describe. And so the goal of a lot of people working inside news organizations now isn't to accurately reflect what's happening. It's the opposite. It's to try to shape opinions and put forth narratives, and frankly, to make sure people do not see opinions or read studies or see information that could lead them to draw the wrong conclusion, at least the wrong conclusion in the minds of those who are shaping and manipulating public opinion on behalf of special interests and corporate interests. You know, for more than four years, the mainstream media pursued Donald Trump with a vengeance. All you have to do is watch any news conference with the president And the hostility of the press is so plain to see. Reporters are belligerent, they're nasty, they're accusatory, and their questions are sort of posed in a condemnation form. And what's so striking to me is that there is no equivalency when it comes to Joe Biden. During the campaign, he was almost never asked any difficult or challenging questions. Most of the questions were, oh, tell us what a terrible person Donald Trump is. And uh, Professor Jonathan Turley um, correctly pointed out in a column recently that the media has created this protective journalistic cocoon around Joe Biden. Uh, And that pattern really continues to this day as as reporters pose these softball questions to Biden that are laughable while they are continuing a virtual blackout on stories like Hunter Biden's influence peddling controversy. Is Professor Turley right about that? Absolutely. I think the tell to ordinary members of the public is the double standard and the hypocrisy. If both candidates or both sides were treated with softball questions, maybe you could criticize it, but you wouldn't have quite the same criticism. Or if both sides were hit with hardball questions all the time. But what we see over and over again is a uniquely one-sided way of asking certain people questions and the expectations and the level of evidence and so on, and a completely different standard applied to the other side. And I argue that's not helping in terms of public confidence. The public, when they see this, and they can see that the reporters have put their thumb on the scale on one side rather than representing different views and accurately presenting what's going on, the viewers have little confidence that they're getting the whole story or the truth, even when they may be sometimes because they've seen this overt bias on the part of the reporters covering the stories. You know, one of the things you point out in your book is that when President Trump gets something wrong, uh, the media calls him a liar. When Joe Biden gets something wrong, well, it's just an unfortunate but forgivable gaffe. And that's what you call part of 
the narrative, as I mentioned before, this repeating and very effective theme that runs through your book. Uh, on page 163 of Slanted, you write the following. The difference in the way mistreat, uh, misstatements are reported in the news, depending upon who makes them, can be explained only through the narrative. Trump is a devious, evil devil. Biden is a well-meaning, affable, innocent goof. End of quote. So, so Cheryl, if Biden is sworn in as the next president, January 20th, what can we expect from the media in a Biden presidency? More of the sort of ingratiating cheerleading and uh, the protection they provide? Yes, by and large, because there has been no repercussion for the sort of reporting that is biased and one-sided. Why would they stop doing what they're doing? And I think the press could use a healthy dose of self-reflection. They promised after 2016 when they were so wrong in their reporting and they got everything so wrong to do that self-reflection and correction. And instead, I think we saw that they doubled down and they got even worse. I don't see them going back or going backwards or doing that self-reflection because this is the goal. The goal now at many news organizations is to present particular narratives and cover stories a certain way and to censor certain ideas, views, studies, and information. We're pretty far down that road and I think there's no turning back. What the future holds though, in the form of pushback, we see tens of millions of Americans, wherever you sit politically, did not buy the narrative as was put forth by so many in the media, did not succumb to the propaganda that the more money spent by the Biden folks, as did Clinton in the campaign, was still not terribly effective compared to what Trump spent. So all of these things, social media was saturated with anti-Trump material, and yet tens of millions of Americans defied those narratives and voted contrary to what they were told and contrary to what they were supposed to do, which shows you there's a pretty large segment of the public that's grown wise to this and is looking for other options. Yeah. You know, uh, perhaps the worst offender when it comes to bias reporting is the New York Times. You take direct aim at them in Chapter 5 of your book. And, you know, I, I was pleased to read it. Um and you cite as evidence uh, this leaked audio recording of a very embarrassing staff meeting, August of 2019. Disgruntled staffers are gathered together and they're demanding that The New York Times be pulled even further to the left. And here's what you write, page 122, quote, at the Times meeting, there's no debate over whether President Trump is a racist and a liar. It's simply just a matter of how the Times will convey how big of a racist, how bad of a liar he is, and how often it will say so. It becomes clear that the Times has predetermined what it sees as a primary narrative for the next two years ahead of any news events actually occurring. They are in the business of slanting rather than reporting. End of quote. So, in other words, Cheryl, did the Times make a conscious decision? Let's stoke racism. Let's gin up racial hatred because it'll damage Donald Trump. Well, they would not put it that way. But yes, that's what it looks like, I think, for a neutral observer to look at what their decision making was. The context of this staff meeting was the summer of 2019, instead of being the summer of love for them, was the summer of embarrassment with one horrible journalistic disaster after another, at once the most well-respected news publication on the planet. 
And then the staff meeting, again, audio of which was leaked out publicly, it's clear in the transcript that the staffers, to the extent there were some who disagreed, they didn't really speak up. It's clear that they saw all of this as part and parcel of what their, their job is, that it's clear they wanted narratives presented. They wanted the news edited to such a degree that it forwarded their personal opinions and their personal agendas. And when it did not do so, they thought the paper was wrongheaded and off base. And even when there was one executive in this meeting that actually said a very brave thing considering what was happening at the meeting. And he said, you know, you think we haven't been hard enough on Donald Trump, but there are sometimes I think we've maybe gone a little too far in that direction. And that was the closest thing that anybody said <laughs> that was sort of fair or a counterpoint to what they were saying, but it was clearly drowned out by everybody else who spoke up at this meeting. Yeah, I'm surprised that person wasn't tarred and feathered and kicked out of the room. Um, you open chapter five, uh, with something I guess I'd forgotten, and I think I did know it at one point in time, but here is what a New York Times staffer said. It's really quite stunning. Quote, racism is in everything. It should be considered in our science reporting, our cultural reporting, our national reporting. It's less about the individual instances of racism and sort of how we're thinking about racism and white supremacy as the foundation of of all of the systems in this country, end of quote. I must say, I, I mean, I find that mentality to be beyond frightening in a reporter. But, you know, is that the sort of contorted, everyone is a racist mindset that is pervasive and controlling at the New York Times and elsewhere? Yes, this is the dominant activism that we see at many news organizations and you'll see in my book, Slanted, that not everybody feels that way. There are New York Timesers who are horrified by this turn. There are still some great reporters there and elsewhere that don't know how to speak up or break through. In fact, one insider, when he commented to me after some of these disasters at the New York Times, he called his alma mater the New Woke Times. And yes, there are a lot of people that see things like we do, but it's so easy for them to label you as if you dissent as a racist or to controversialize you or to get this momentum against you and your opinions, if you simply want to be fair, that I think people are afraid to do it. Yeah, maybe it's just me, but I, I happen to think that the growing influence of the New York Times are a lot of young people. And and I, I frankly suspect they couldn't pass a history test. But getting back to that meeting, which was so embarrassing for The New York Times, but so revealing to, to Americans, an executive editor is at that staff. At one point, he addresses how special counsel Bob Mueller concluded that neither Trump or anybody in his campaign conspired or colluded with Russia, which is the exact opposite, Cheryl, of what the New York Times have been reporting with absolute certainty for more than two years. Yet he tells the staff, and, and you repeat this in the book, that they covered the story better than anybody else, which is pretty humorous and astonishing and, and as I say, revealing. There's no introspection about how the Times got the story so Wrong, profoundly so. And in your book, page 123, you state, quote, are their journalists so blinded by bias that they miss the facts? Nobody even asked the question in that meeting. 
And what's amazing, Cheryl, is the New York Times won a Pulitzer for their coverage of that story, which in the end they got fundamentally and egregiously wrong. Uh, what does that tell you? You know, when you win a prize, just keep doing the same wrong thing. Well, this was across the spectrum, the misreporting. It's not that the story shouldn't have been covered, but as you know, it was covered in such a blatantly one-sided fashion without evidence, as they like to say, another weaponized propaganda term. But those presenting that side and refusing to listen to the counterpoints were saying that side had to be proven or had proven true simply because it was said, these anonymous sources who said that Trump had colluded with Putin, for example. But every time Donald Trump or people around him said it wasn't true and didn't happen, which turned out to be correct, they were immediately branded as liars. That was characterized right off the bat by the same media as lies. Again, though they had no evidence it was, this is how one-sided it was. And then you have media organizations, nonprofits, news watchdogs, all getting on board and codifying this behavior, actually cheering it on and saying it's okay and it's good. So you're not going to get any pushback from the associations that you might think to yourself actually would watch journalism, measure these sorts of things and take action. They're all in on it too. Look at the Columbia Journalism Review. They look like a media matters publication sometimes when they publish uh, some of the stories they do. They never would have done things like this or publish the opinions and the one-sided biased reports that they wouldn't have done this 15, 20 years ago. I'm talking with Cheryl Atkinson, a veteran reporter and one of the best in the nation, uh, who's come out with a new book called Slanted. You can pick it up at uh, bookstores nationwide, or you can order it on Amazon.com, HarperCollins.com. HarperCollins is the publisher. Um, chapter 70 of your book is entitled The Mother of All Narratives, Russia, Russia, Russia. You call it a a stunning feat of propaganda. Um, page 169 of your book, quote, it's unprecedented how formerly well-respected national news organizations justified suspending long-standing ethics and journalism guidelines in order to promote a slanted, ultimately false storyline. The more false it became, the more undeniable it seemingly grew it any point, it would have been so easy for the media to step back, follow professional practices, put the facts into context and perspective. Instead, we risked our very jobs and credibility and our zeal to sell the public a bill of goods. And I certainly agree with that, Cheryl, having written a couple of books on what turned out to be a hoax. And it was so surprising to me how I was viciously attacked by others in the media for reporting and doing legal analysis that actually in the end proved to be correct. Does that demonstrate just how invested the media be became in this false narrative? Damn the facts, because, you know, it's a great narrative. It's going to ruin Donald Trump. Well, yes, and it's not just that story, which you know so much about. Let's look at the polling group Rasmussen, which was the most accurate, if not one of the most accurate, if not the most accurate in 2016, but was roundly controversialized and attacked by other news organizations and other polls as if it's, because it was an outlier, the one that's wrong or the one that's bad or the one that's biased. So you look at the most accurate poll and the pollsters, and you see the treatment given by the press who never called out the inaccurate polls. I mean, look at the New York Times, Siena. I think they were wrong this time on the tune of not just two, three, four, seven points, some of these polls wrong by 16 points. 
And then again, I'll go back to, are they really, all of these polls, two presidential elections in a row, really so bad at the one job they have to do, or are they simply accomplishing the narrative, using their polls to try to shape public opinion, mission accomplished, rather than accurately measure it? And I argue that the patterns show it's probably the latter. All right. One of the best chapters of your book, chapter 10, is how members of the media have now appointed themselves as police and enforcers over others in the media uh, to make sure everybody conforms strictly to their orthodoxy, their narrative. Uh, page 220, quote, reporters are now less concerned with facts and more with demanding adherence to the narrative. They determine the position that is to be taken on issues or facts that could be written about. They punish, cajole, and threaten those who do not comply. Their goal is to stop the free-thinking, independent interlopers to make it where nobody dares to go off script or disclose facts or ask questions that the media bullies want to keep hidden. And you cite as an example yourself. You felt the wrath of media bullies. Uh, earlier this year, in fact, several months ago, a reporter of the New York Times, Jeremy Peters, completely mischaracterized your work. He deceptively edited a, a quote from you to falsely accuse you of being a coronavirus doubter, which is not at all what you had said or written, uh, and provably so. I went back and looked at what you had said or written. And what this guy Peters at the New York Times said was was just wrong. So how did that turn out? Well, even when you can point to blatant factual errors and raise that with their editor, they don't care. They simply double down and say, well, there's another reason why what they said was OK, even though I proved it was completely false. And I proved that what they were criticizing that I had written about was exactly what they had reported. But for some reason, wanted to controversialize me and hold me out. Who knows what powerful interests wanted me on the hot seat for this. But in any event, I had to hire a lawyer and pay many thousands of dollars to contact them because there's really nothing ordinary people can do when they're treated like this. Right. And yes, we got corrections to all the things they said, but you know how many people read the corrections two, three weeks later <laughs> compared to how many people see the original report and even now, probably if you looked up the article, the corrections are very tiny at the end rather than the article itself being corrected. So this is part of how the operation goes. And again, in a neutral environment where journalism still mattered at these places, people would be fired for this kind of journalism. But instead, they're rewarded because, again, I think this is actually mission accomplished. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, the media loves to make lists, for example, President Trump's alleged lies. You know, they, they go to extraordinary lengths to follow everything he says and categorize it as untruthful or false or an outright lie. Yet, as you point, nobody in the media makes a list of their own mistakes or misreporting or dishonesty. So in your book, to your credit, you do precisely that. It's one of the more compelling aspects of your book called Slanted. And, you know, Cheryl, it's a pretty long list. Well, and I'm sure I don't have all of them, but I have over 130 major media mistakes in the era of Trump. And I only count as one. Let's say the New York Times, as it often did, made a terrible factual error and was picked up by hundreds or thousands of other news organizations around the world. I just count that as one. So these are major mistakes. I found none 
that went in Trump's favor. Maybe one exists that I missed, but I reached out and asked people to send them to me if they found any either. All of them worked to Trump's detriment, which looking at it as a pattern, you have to consider the possibility that this is bias at play, not just honest mistakes, particularly when you look at the fact that many of these mistakes were made um, that were mistakes even journalism students know not to make in college. So they're so biased, in my view, they're happy to be sloppy and not follow their own standards to simply put out this news that will get attention, even if it's fake, and that um, other people will pick up and copy and further the narrative. Yeah, because nobody gets fired. I mean, the media rarely apologizes for the legions of mistakes they make and the stories they get wrong. They simply move on seamlessly to the next narrative without conscience, without regret of the damage they've wrought. It's really quite remarkable. And, you know, the, the sad part of it, Cheryl, is they get away with it, don't they? Yes. And, you know, I I also track the trend that when they get something egregiously wrong, instead of saying it's wrong, they change the story. For example, when a network claimed wrongly that President Trump had not visited the troops or was the first president to not see the troops at Christmas time, and Trump was actually, in fact, on his way to Afghanistan, where he did visit the troops and left on Christmas Day to do so, And you and I know that these surprise visits often happen, why you would write in advance that he hadn't done so, why you don't know enough to, you know, pull your punches and make sure you're correct. This happened twice with Trump, by the way, with different news agencies. But anyway, when they found out they were wrong because he did go uh, to see the troops on Christmas after all, instead of apologizing or correcting the story, they changed the story to being that, well, Christmas time doesn't really count. He still didn't visit on Christmas time because even though he left on Christmas, he didn't arrive until slightly after Christmas Day. And it became a debate about what, how you define Christmas. And even the Washington Post took on the news organization for that. I, I don't want to say which one it is because I may say the wrong one, one of the networks, and said, just admit you were wrong for heaven's sake, rather than turning this into a debate about Christmas. And then they also then found out why Trump somehow it was still not good enough and he was still the last president to do so. You know, they changed the story entirely. And then the changed story, which was a different and new attack on Trump rather than the apology and correction, became the narrative that you saw picked up all around the globe after they were wrong about the big story. I'm talking with Cheryl Atkinson, the author of a terrific new book called Slanted. Go out and get it. Order it on Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. Just came out. A couple of more questions, Cheryl, and I'll let you go. I I must say I'm deeply concerned about the social media mob that is the source of so many ruthless attacks, disinformation, as well as the most popular social media platforms, Twitter and Facebook, uh, that, that now are practicing routine censorship of any story that doesn't strictly adhere to their political bias. How dangerous... Is that? Well, I see this as the most dangerous current development in the things that we're talking about. And we foretold a little bit of this in my last book, but we've seen it come to fruition in a way probably even more overt than I imagined because they were always beginning to censor our information based on algorithms and things that we couldn't see. But they got very desperate, in my view, before the campaign when it looked like President Trump might 
win a second term and didn't care if people saw the censorship and just started taking down accounts and taking down articles in ways that you could see. And let's even look at non-political things. When Google was directing searches during coronavirus, partnering with the World Health Organization, directing searches to that group and controversializing contrary views that turned out to be accurate. And the World Health Organization acknowledged its information in some cases was entirely wrong, but Google is making sure we see the wrong information because it's on the narrative and that we don't have easy access to the correct information. Think about how this shapes so much of what we do and what we can find out about and the studies we can see. This is really dangerous and it's all part of this manipulation of the landscape, I think, after the special interests had pretty much fully taken care of the news, they saw the internet was still a place left where people could get information they didn't want them to see, and they felt like they had to take care of that too. So it's it's the social media mob together with the social media platforms uh, that I mentioned. Uh, so my last question is, you know, it would appear their goal is to fundamentally transform American society into their progressive vision. So what's the solution? Well, I, I take hope in the fact, as I may have mentioned, that so many people are outside the narrative, that so many people, and I'm not saying this as a supporter of Trump, I'm saying this as a supporter of the notion that people defy the narrative by voting for him, despite what they were told to do. I think with the popularity of Parler and people leaving Twitter, there are people looking for different platforms that can't be canceled, that aren't going to censor. They're looking for different ways to present unbiased information or off-narrative information. I think, I think that will come. I think we're seeing a bit of a transition to something that will provide more of those opportunities. And I think a lot of people will flock toward that. And then the only people left on the manipulated platforms, if things don't change, such as Twitter, will be the censors who are trying to shape public opinion and the robots and the PR firms that have all these accounts they manipulate talking to the choir without being able to really influence those they're trying to influence because they will have left. And by in that way, we can speak with our wallets and with our feet and not patronize the places that are going to censor, manipulate and curate our information. Well, you do end uh, with a measure of optimism, which was a great, great way to end. And, and I'll quote your last line. I choose to believe there's a viable path because the alternative is too chilling. In an alternative future, people will be told this book was never written. Uh, a remarkable ending and very apropos to the contents of the book. Well done. And I would say to our listeners, you know, you, you really must pick up and read Cheryl Ackeson's excellent new book. It's called Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. Um, and you need to read it before the mainstream media finds a way to somehow erase it in that uh, dystopian alternative future that they've conjured up. Cheryl, thanks so much for being with us. Congratulations on writing such an important book and, and frankly, having the courage to tell the truth. Thanks for being with us. Well, thanks for having me on to talk about it. I appreciate it. And that's The Brief. I'm Greg Jarrett. Thanks for joining us.